Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Water, shore, again, probably. Ant, root, wash, oil, theatre, iron, salmon. Spit an image, Alabama, lawyer. Toilet, New Orleans, Pekin, both, again. Hello everyone and welcome back to a brand new season four of the Irish Passport Podcast. Dun, da, da, da. Da, 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 da. <laughs> we have a brilliant range of topics lined up for you this season and we can't wait to get into it and share all our reporting with you. Now, what you heard at the beginning of this episode is our topic for today, and that is, of course, Irish accents. Now, we've wanted to do this episode for ages because there's actually so much to unpack here. Now, accents on the island of Ireland are unusually diverse, really, for such a small country. Uh, it's often the case that people from one village will speak totally different from people from another village just down the road. So why is this? We'll be hearing from Irish accent expert Shane Walsh, who tells us this. There is a sort of stereotypical Hollywood thing. If we think back to the Lucky Charms ads, if you've ever seen those, there's a very melodic, oh, hoity-toity-toity. We'll also be looking at the history of Irish accents and how they've developed to what they are over time. We'll be looking at the politics of accents and the barriers of structural discrimination that can come with speaking a certain way. Senator Lynn Ruan tells us this about her Dublin accent. I think because of my accent, I had to work a little harder. People didn't just expect that I could do my job and I'd be good at it. We'll also explore what happens when your Irish accent isn't what people expect it to be, and why some people get so worked up when they think that others have the quote-unquote wrong accent. And most importantly, we'll be hearing from some of you listeners. A few weeks ago, we sent out a call on social media and asked people to send us recordings of themselves. And we'll be talking a little bit about some accents and what's unique about them. Something that a lot of Fermanagh people will say would be... If there's been a bit of a problem, oh Jesus, that's a wild handling, that's an just handling. Ogis meaning big, handling meaning problem. We're also going to be talking a little bit about our own accents and what has influenced them. So let's get right into it, Tim. Okay, so Naomi, the Irish accent is probably one of the country's most instantly recognisable exports. So before we look at real accents, I wanted to look at something that is perhaps far more familiar to most people around the world outside Ireland, and that is the diddly eye, diddly dee, Darby O'Gill, Kitty O'Shea, Larry the Leprechaun Irish accent stereotype of stage and screen. Is that me gold? What the hell are you? I'm a leprechaun, me dear. Here, this is what you're looking for, right? Ah. Me powers are returning. (laughs) What you heard there is Jennifer Aniston fleeing from the creepy villain of the 1993 horror movie Leprechaun. And if you've ever seen representations of the Irish in film and TV, you've probably encountered some version of this idea of an Irish accent. It's essentially a fictional creation which doesn't really much correlate with any one real accent on the island of Ireland. And it's also 
the product of a long cultural history, right, Tim? Yeah, that that accent has always been a fundamental feature of this stock character that we call the stage Irishman. Now, I say Irish man because he's usually a man, uh, though sometimes there are female versions. They're usually called Bridget for some reason. I suppose that's the female version of Paddy. Um, and anyway, you can see that that character represented in British theatre productions as early as the 17th century. Right, so is that like the Paddy caricature? So like a big hat and sideburns and a pipe, <laughs> uh, prancing and laughing and causing mischief kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you know how we all dress. Okay. <laughs> it kind of sounds like it's digging into some pretty grim colonial stereotypes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the stage Irishman essentially represents what colonial Britain and later America, you know, kind of feared about the Irish. For example, in the 17th century, that Paddy character, uh, when he first appears, you know, he's, he's originally an all-out evil villain, uh, because at that time Ireland was a really dangerous place for British settlers, and there was a lot of propaganda about Irish uprisings, which painted them as, you know, bloodthirsty monsters who would eat English babies and things like that. Uh, so they, they basically represented, you know, a menace to civilization at the beginning. Uh, but then later on, in the 18th century, at a time when the native Irish had been brutally subdued, and there was this new and very corrupt regime of mostly Protestant Anglo-Irish landlords in place, those landlords started to work themselves into that humour. So during the 18th century, the stage Irishman kind of evolves, and instead of this monster, he becomes like an ascendancy profligate with like monstrous characteristics. So so he's not the sort of peasant Irishman, he's actually the like aristocrat? Yeah, he's a, he's an amalgamation of both. You know, it's really weird oh. because in the eyes of like mainstream British audiences in a London theatre on a Saturday night, you know, but they're both the same thing, you know? They, d- they didn't really uh, know how to tell the difference. They knew that both groups were bad, you know, like, in their <laughs> eyes, uh, in different ways. So usually this new 18th century stage Irishman is a broke landowner, and he's come to London uh, to scam innocent English heiresses into marrying him and getting at their fortune. Uh, so That is so fascinating, like, to think of that as, like, a metaphor for actually the the colonialization of Ireland itself. You know, like, it wasn't yeah. what England wanted to do with, like... They were tricked into it just to get their funds. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, really interestingly, is that's where we begin to see this tradition of the stage Irishman as, like, a cunning character, as, like, devious, with this particular pr- propensity for, you know, using his words to manipulate people, this kind of gift of the gab thing. Um, oh. But then, later on, even more recently, in the 19th century, that stage Irishman transforms, once again, into this kind of new representation of all those things. He's this lazy emperor so he's a peasant again, um, but he still has that, you know, ascendancy scammer tricks with his words. He, he appears in both Britain and America now, and he's still out to fool people, you know, to somehow like swindle them of their cash. This, it's incredible how much that is so on the nose represented by the leprechaun figure in that mm. movie that we just played a clip of. That's that's incredible. And it's amazing also how it always tracks the political context of the time. Like, what's the scary threat of the time? Mm. So actually what we're looking at with leprechauns, like the leprechaun caricature, is actually a stage Irishman. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying that like at the time when stage Irishmen were represented on stage... They would have been 
dressed in clothes that looked old-fashioned for the time to sort of show their backwardness. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he, the leprechaun that we see today um, in, you know, caricatures, that's, a, that's, like, frozen in time from the mid-19th century. And the joke joke is that this character is wearing kind of late 18th century clothes. He's provincial, he's backwards, he hasn't picked up on the latest London trends. And that survived into the leprechaun that we see today. And then later on, we start to see the leprechaun dressing in green, because of course, green was the colour of the Irish Revolutionary Movement. And, you know, these monster creatures were commonly associated with nationalist politics, you know, to make nationalism seem like a monstrous, unnatural thing in itself. I, I just kind of, my mind is blown how, you know, the it's now become this like cultural artifact that's kind of sold to tourists <laughs> yeah. considering that history. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. And we've touched on this before, you know, in, in images and um, caricatures in the 19th century, uh, the Irish were, you know, pretty much uh, depicted as subhuman simian creatures. They're generally depicted as smaller than the English. They have these long arms and short legs like, uh, like monkeys. And that reflected very, very real beliefs at the time that the Irish were a less evolved race of people. Uh, so yeah, the Paddy character is is about fear, but it's also about colonial projection. You know, if the if the stage Irishman is cunning, the English must be honest. You know, if he's lazy, the English must be industrious. So it could be said that the Irish accent performs the same function. It doesn't really matter that it doesn't sound like a real Irish accent, because it's not about the Irish at all. It's it's about the colonial insecurity of the colonizer. You know, it's so it's, it's just it's kind of self-commentary. It's like saying it's like using this character to say what the upstanding British person is like, honest and straight talking and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like he, the stage Irish character wouldn't be funny if these, this kind of behaviour was considered acceptable. Uh, so it's it's an arbitrary way to, you know, other people who might bring up some feelings of discomfort or guilt. And the important thing, I think, is that it makes the stage Irishman just seem somehow ridiculous or not to be taken seriously. And that's basically a way of neutralising the political or cultural threat of Ireland in the colonial mind. Okay, so yeah, you can't take people seriously if they're speaking in this like kind of silly brogue, as it's called in, in the US. It kind of reminds me of that sketch where um, the Sinn Féin politician is only allowed to give statements after he's inhaled helium. Um, to undermine, to detract from his credibility from the Brass Eye series. It kind of reminds me as well, like when we did our episode on The Great Hunger, there were a lot of negative caricatures in the British press at the time um, that depicted like Irish peasants. And sometimes in the text that came underneath it, you would have like a phonetic uh, representation of what they would sound like you wouldn't be able to hear the message except in a particular voice, which is it's kind of a really interesting way of, of, of undermining the demands of the Irish at the time, I suppose, um, by kind of intimating that Irish people are like inherently foolish and dysfunctional and, and, and just not credible, which evades state responsibility for the policies that created the conditions for starvation in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose you, you do see this happening to a lot of, you know, oppressed peoples around the world, this kind of a caricaturization of them. Uh, it has been, you know, happening in Ireland now for centuries. Like it does, does fundamentally dehumanize um, the Irish. It's really interesting how powerful a political tool it is, though. Like I said that the Anglo-Irish were even thrown in with this before, but Northern Unionists have been thrown in to the Paddy caricature as well when it's politically convenient, you know, even though they might have a quintessentially uh, British identity. It's, it's really interesting to see how immense a capacity this has to make Irish affairs seem less serious. 
We have to remember as well that this stage Irish character has survived into recent times. It wasn't so long ago, as we've seen before, that you might see an Irish priest or a policeman, you know, popping up on films or TV as a bit of comic relief. And the accent is like the main part of that. And even today, like certainly I've noticed that especially on British comedy shows and panels, there's this kind of assumption that Irish people are just somehow inherently funny because of their accent. <laughs> You know, like characters yeah. with Southern Irish accents in particular, you know, they constantly fall into this comedic role, like just naturally. And that idea of the Irish being naturally funny, even when they, you know, aren't actually that funny, you know, is in its own way, like just the latest reincarnation of the stage Irishman, if you ask me. It's so interesting. Like there, it does come with a positive stereotype as well. Like if you think of Chris, o the actor Chris O'Dowd, like his whole career almost has been playing these sort of charming, twinkly eyed Irish boyfriend characters. Of course, this fictional stage Irish accent also had an enormous influence on actors who play serious Irish characters on screen. It can be kind of hilarious when you're watching like a crime drama and the detective waltzes in speaking like, you know, Jennifer Aniston's uh, leprechaun. Um, but so I was interested in this, you know, survival of the stage Irish accent in representations of the Irish. And I spoke to Zurich University's Shane Walsh. He's the author of Irish English as Represented on Film. And I asked him what were the main features of the accent that stood out the most to people who might I try to imitate it? Well, there are traditionally a catalogue of features that will be found in literary dialect representations of, of Irish accents. So if we go back to, let's say, the Punch uh, comics and that I heard you talking about in a previous episode, or if you take a look at maybe Irish joke books, which is also some of the research that I've done, um, there are a number of respellings and features that would come up there. So for example, you know, we talk sometimes about the Irish accent, you know, and we, we, we sort of make fun of this Irish notion. This is a, a pronunciation of I that maybe has its origin in, in Dublin Englishes, but is taken to an extreme then by by people from outside who just, just hear it slightly differently. Another one would be the change between S and sh. So, and sh, so you'd have a word like start or the west of Ireland, that kind of thing that stands out too. And uh, you get that as well with uh, this and them being pronounced dis and dem. The most common representation of Irish accents in comics, in joke books, and in other written forms is the pronunciation of my as me. And also g-dropping and elision. I mean, these are features of all varieties of English. You know, when we speak in an informal setting, we often tend to drop the g, as it's called. But it seems to predominate, even if you compare within publications or within joke books for the Irish characters, they tend to do it more. Now, when it comes to accents in Hollywood, obviously the Irish accent is not the only casualty. Imitating accents in general is really hard to do, and even people who are good at it usually slip up every now and again. At the time that Shane was writing his book, uh, there had been a slew of Irish accents on film that have since entered the Stage Irishman Hall of Fame. Um, when I wrote the book, this was a time when there was an awful lot of criticism of the types of, particularly um, accents by non-Irish people that were being portrayed in, in Hollywood, the likes of Tom Cruise in Far and Away, Julia Roberts had been in Michael Collins. And I was just interested in this notion of accuracy and authenticity, because there is a sort of stereotypical Hollywood thing. If we think back to the Lucky Charms ads, if you've ever seen those, there's a very melodic, oh, hoity-toity-toity thing. And a lot of actors were, were falling into that trap. Yeah, I think uh, Gerald Butler in P.S. I Love You is, is, a, is a good example. You know, he himself has actually come out and apologized for the accent. You know, this is bit ridiculous too you know that one has to come out and apologize for it but you know he was criticized a lot about it and he he took that criticism on board and he apologized for it but it's it's a pretty bad example 
There are other cases too where, where the accents are a little bit all over the place, where they sound, you know, maybe northern at one moment, southern another moment, Dublin another moment, maybe Scottish another moment. I think Kevin Spacey's in Ordinary Decent Criminal is a, is a good example of that. But I think, strictly speaking, if you were to be fair to the actors and to just look at this segmental level, they weren't always off. Although there, of course, too, you have to say, you know, no two Irish people speak the same. So it's very hard to, to have some sort of benchmark to, to measure against. That's another thing I think that, that we have to bear in mind. You know, there is not one Irish accent. So we're being a bit unfair, I think, on, on these actors at times. So, Naomi, let's get to the real accents of Ireland then. Hello, my name's Gabriel McCaffrey. I am from Belfast, County Antrim, although I've lived in Canada for over 30 years. Some typical Belfast phrases. Ack away and catch yourself on. I hear ma. Hi, Tim and Naomi. What's a crack? What about you? How you doing? This is uh, Leanne Ross, and I live in Dunedin, New Zealand, um, but grew up and spent 30-odd years of my life in Belfast, County Antrim. Accents, they're ranged anywhere from the real working-class inner city that I grew up in, um, would be sometimes considered a smick-like accent, right through to your very proper North Down accent that you would see more commonly on the television. But I guess the biggest thing I've noticed since moving away and having to tone down my working class accent has been the vowel sounds and even just the way I say that word vowel. So from home saying, I know bother lads, I'll be there in an hour to yes, no problem, I'll be there in an hour. Hi Naomi and Tim, my name is Katrina. I grew up in County Kildare and I went to secondary school in Westmeath and college in Cork and then I moved to London for a good few years and was often asked if I was American or maybe even Canadian because you know because I was understandable I didn't necessarily mean I was Irish I didn't have a strong accent. So like Shane said there is no one Irish accent there are hundreds probably thousands of them and there's no way that anyone could list all the accents in Ireland not on this podcast and not elsewhere uh, because they change they change from generation to generation. Hey guys, my name is Rebecca Powell. I'm from Nina in North Tipperary um, and lived there for about half of my life. I'm currently living in Melbourne, Australia now. Um, I was born with parents who were both from Nina as well, uh, but never actually had a Nina accent or a North Tipperary accent, mainly because my mum was raised throughout Africa. Uh, my grandparents one was raised in India and England. Other grandparents, were, well, were a Protestant family. And one of my grannies uh, was quite obsessed with the royal family. So I guess very Anglo-Irish upbringing. So yeah, used, people used to ask, was I English or American? And uh, yeah, even had South African ones. To get a taste of the diversity of Irish accents, here are some recordings that listeners sent into us. We asked them to read out a list of words and we didn't get every county in there, but we didn't do so badly. So some of these accents are specific to particular towns. Some of them are more regional. And in each case, we'll introduce the accent in the way it was self-described by the person who's speaking. We'll go around the island roughly clockwise, starting at the top with White Abbey, North Belfast. Of the east, there came a hard man. Oh, 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 all the way from Britain. Ah, 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 glory, hallelujah. Cut the boy and the arms too. Ant, bread, wash, oil, theatre, iron, 
Salmon. South Armagh. Water. Sure. Data. Ruin. Crayon. Loud slash mead. New Orleans. Pekin. Both. Again. Probably. Northside Dubliner who has lived abroad for a year. Spitting image. Alabama. Lawyer. Coupon. Mayonnaise. Dublin. Pecan boat. Again, probably spitting image. Tala via Dublin 8. Root. Wash. Oil. Theatre. Iron. Dublin Traveller. Pecan boat. Again, probably spitting image. Arklow, County Wicklow. Data. Ruin. Crayon. Toilet. New Orleans. Cashel, County Tipperary. New Orleans. Pecan both Again, probably spitting image. Clonakilty, West Cork. Fire, water, sure, data, ruin, crayon. Cork. Lawyer, coupon, mayonnaise, syrup, pajamas, cot. Cork. Data, ruin, crayon, toilet, New Orleans. Limerick. Toilet, New Orleans. Pecan, both. Again, probably spitting image, Alabama, lawyer, coupon. Hybrid, Galway and Galway Traveller. Pecan, both, again, probably, spitting image, Alabama. Athlone, water, shore, data, rune, crayon, toilet, New Orleans, pecan, boat. Tormachidi, County Mayo. Teethre, iron, salmon, caramel, fire, water, shore. Balnamore, County Leitrim. Shore, data, ruin, crayon, toilet. Ballyboffy, East Donegal. Iron, salmon, caramel, fire, water, sure. Donegal. Caramel, fire, water, sure. Data, ruin, crayon. Maharavelt, South County Derry. Pecan, both, again, probably, spitting image, Alabama. In through the back, close, and out through the Donny. As we said, it's almost impossible to pin down the diversity of accents that exist in any one moment of time. It's also very normal for different members of the same family to have different accents because everyone has a different life experience. Yeah, for sure. You know, accents can be influenced by your parents, certainly, but also by your friends growing up by your teachers, by your job, where you move to, what kind of media you engage with, you know, the list is endless. So while people might talk generally about a Dublin accent or Cork or Belfast, when you live in those places, you'll quickly notice that what you might think is a typical accent of those places is is very, very diverse. So two people who both say they have Dublin accents, as we've heard, often sound remarkably different to one another when you listen to them closely. So Tim, what's behind this huge diversity in the way that people in Ireland speak English? Well, I mean, a lot of it, of course, is a mystery because of all those different influences. But it's thought to be to do uh, primarily with the different waves of colonisation in Ireland over the course of history. There have been English speakers on the island of Ireland since the Middle Ages, but English didn't become the predominant language in the country until the 19th century. And that happened for two main reasons. Number one, the Great Famine, which wiped out whole populations of Irish speakers. And number two, the introduction of mass education systems, again in the 19th century, which under British rule endeavoured to get Irish speakers to give up their language and to speak English. But of course, the history is much older than that, right? So the first wave of colonisation from Britain came in around the 12th century, and those were the Normans, or as, as they're known in Ireland, the Old English. 
So what kind of a language were the colonists speaking at that point? Well, the funny thing actually about those old English is that lots of them were probably not speaking English at all. Uh, the Normans spoke French predominantly at that point, and a lot of the settlers who came with them uh, came from Wales, so they would have spoken Welsh. Um, there would have been people who spoke English, and they would have been speaking Middle English at that point, so think like uh, Chaucer. Okay. Um, so I remember from our episode on Galway from last season that people who lived around those Norman settlements, they would often have been bilingual or multilingual, you know, speaking Irish, English, French and Latin. Yeah, exactly. And remember, those early colonists were vastly outnumbered by the Gaelic Irish. So while lots of Irish people learned a bit of English at that point, the prevailing trend was for the English settlers to abandon English and to start speaking Irish, which made a lot more sense. I've heard, though, that some older ways of speaking English survive in Ireland that have died out, say, in Britain, and that in some ways Hiberno-English is closer to, say, the English of Shakespeare than the English that's spoken in England now is. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we'll probably never know for sure, but, you know, there are some traces of really old Englishes in Ireland. Um, there, there are two Middle English dialects that survived right into the 19th century. Uh, one was called Yola, and that was spoken around Wexford, where the Normans had first arrived. And the other was called a Fingalese, which was spoken around the area of Fingal. That's just uh, north of Dublin City. Um, there are records of that dialect uh, being written down. So we know, for example, that they pronounced the TH sound as a kind of D sound. Uh, so the number three was pronounced tree, you know, which is still famously a common pronunciation in some Irish accents. Um, they also used me uh, instead of my, which, uh, you know, Shane mentioned there. Uh, that's very interesting. And some people have also suggested that traces of original Middle English can still be heard in some Dublin accents. You know, Dublin, remember, was the main hub for those Norman settlers. Uh, so, for instance, in some Dublin accents, words like leave, L-E-A-V-E, are sometimes pronounced like lave, uh, which appears to correspond to Middle English pronunciations. Fascinating. And especially about Fingalese, that's a great <laughs> name. So, um, what about the more extensive wave of colonisation that happened later in the 16th and 17th centuries and, and that really established English as one of the main languages of Ireland? Yeah, so this was a totally different kind of uh, colonisation. These were, of course, the plantations, as opposed to the Old English, who were mostly like warlords and had integrated into Irish culture over the centuries. These were new settlers who brought whole families and even whole transplanted villages with them. And initially, one of these new settlers' missions was to speak and spread English. That was like, you know, the reason that they were there. Um, mm. So this happened in, you know, different ways in different parts of the island. Uh, the first plantations, which we often forget about these days, uh, were set up in the Midlands of Ireland in the 1550s, around the counties of Offaly and Leash. And the settlers there mostly came from southwest England. So they would have been speaking an English more or less the same English. English as Shakespeare spoke. And the locals around them would have been learning English for the first time in this style. So what about then the massive plantation of Ulster that came next? Yeah, of course. So the famous plantation of Ulster, which we've spoken about loads on this podcast, was, you know, much more devastating to uh, native Irish populations than what had come before. So English got a foothold there much more quickly and much more strongly. Uh, the settlers on those plantations also came from a different place. They came from northern England and from Scotland. So they spoke a different version of English. Um, and mm. that has had a huge influence on the English spoken in modern day Northern Ireland, um, especially in the form of Ulster Scots, which is spoken by an estimated 16,000 people there, according to the 2011 Northern Ireland census. Uh, Ulster Scots is a linguistic cousin of Scots in Scotland, and it was originally a variety of Anglo-Saxon spoken in the Scottish Lowlands. At the same time, Irish people, for the most part, who would have been teaching themselves English, a lot of the time they literally translated Irish syntax and grammar 
into English words. So a good example of the result that you get for is, is how you talk about the recent past. So for example, instead of saying, I ate my dinner or I've just eaten dinner, you might say, I'm after eating my dinner, which is, it comes from Tom Taresh in, in Asgeilga, which is it's a structure directly taken from Irish. Linguists call this uniquely Hiberno-English piece of grammar the hot news perfect. So it's something that just happened. <laughs> right. Great name. Oh, sure. And, you know, sometimes that Shakespearean influence from the English spoken by planters comes together with that influence from Irish. So, for example, in some parts of the country, people use the early modern word ye instead of you. You might recognize that from Shakespeare. Um, and they use that to address more than one person. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Because, of course, the Irish language, like most European languages, has a you plural pronoun. Uh, so even though it disappeared from English, you can see why Irish people kept on using ye, you know, because they were coming from communities that were used to thinking and speaking in Irish, and they were missing that uh, plural pronoun. Um, you actually get a few different versions of that you plural around the country. Some people say yous or yes or yes. As you mentioned earlier, Tim, in the 19th century, two huge things happened to the Irish accent. So firstly, the Great Famine wiped out a lot of Irish speakers. And those who were left suddenly had to start learning English urgently if they wanted to get a job, move up in the world or emigrate. Uh, secondly, later on in the century, we see standardised school curriculums come in. So whole generations were being instructed to speak in a more or less uniform way. So what impact did that have? Well, in the 20th century, that standardising process was intensified by the appearance of, you know, media, TV and radio uh, on a national scale. So a bit like the way the BBC in the UK used to privilege this specific RP, registered pronunciation accent, uh, in Ireland, the national broadcaster RTE promoted a regionally non-distinct, generally kind of middle class sounding Irish accent. And that created what we call now the supra-regional Southern Irish English. Um, in other <laughs> words, an accent... Yeah, it's a big mouthful. It's an accent that's used all over the country. That's all it means. Um, especially by younger people. And uh, that might only be slightly influenced by the regional accents of where they live. Uh, but Naomi, that had a really interesting byproduct in the 20th century. Because generally at that time, standardised accents in media and education were based on, like I said, middle class metropolitan accents in the capitals. You know, that wasn't just in Ireland, you get that all around Europe. And in Ireland, a lot of that took place after partition. So the standardised accent, you know, disseminated all over the Republic was a middle-class Dublin accent. But the standardised accent promoted in Northern Ireland was usually a middle-class Belfast accent. So hmm. in the last, like, 60 or 70 years, there's been this huge split in how people talk north and south of the border. So in the last 60 or, you know, 70 years, accents north and south of the border have become significantly different from one another. Uh, people all over Northern Ireland were influenced by Belfast English, and people all over the south were influenced by Dublin English. That is really fascinating, and it actually answers something that I guess I'd been wondering about, but hadn't even consciously wondered about, if you know what I mean, like, because hmm. it is really distinct. It's also quite sad, though, that we've lost a lot of regional accents quite recently. Mm. Um, and I guess it shows you as well that accents are very dynamic. So in Ireland, as in probably every country, accents are overlaid with connotations about class, social status and education level. And they can come with privileges in terms of the assumptions that people make about you. Or they can be used to exclude people from access. As a very simple example, recently I found out that the family of a guy I know had tried to book a function room at a hotel for a gathering after a funeral. Now, this was before the coronavirus lockdown, so back in normal times when such things could happen. 
So what happened? The family called the hotel to make the booking, and they were told that the hotel did not cater for post-funeral events. Very strange. So what did I do? After speaking to the guy, I called the hotel myself and asked if I could book a function room for a post-funeral event. Let's hear what they told me on the phone. Oh, hi there. I'm just calling um, with an event query. Um, I was wondering what options you have for um, a family gathering. It would be um, for after a funeral. Okay, and when's it for? It would be uh, next weekend, Saturday. Saturday the 16th. And what time is it that you're looking for? 2 p.m. And how many people? I think it would be about 30. And what's the maximum number that you could accommodate? Uh, uh, we don't have a maximum number because our restaurant is quite large. Okay. Um, we don't have a private room available for that day, I'm afraid. But we could accommodate you in the restaurant. So as you can hear there, they basically said, sure. How many people do you want to do you want to bring? And do you know what the difference was, Tim, between me calling and the family of that guy? No, what was the difference? They're travellers, and I'm not. And hmm. you can tell that in the way we speak. So that's one example of how you can be systematically excluded because of the way you speak. People from the travelling community, or Minkeri is sometimes uh, the preferred term, they suffer structural discrimination in Ireland, as we discussed in our episode about travellers. And one of the ways in which they can be identified and marked out is is the way they speak. Right, yeah, of course, the way people speak can trigger instant, you know, even unconscious assumptions about the speaker. Um, each accent comes with different connotations, positive and negative and in between. Um, I think a determining factor in the impact those kind of biases have depends on the power and resources of the speaker. You know, the more excluded you are from society and the fewer resources you have, the deeper the impact uh, discrimination can be. Right, so I talked about this lately with Senator Lynn Rowan. So we got together for a conversation over Skype about accent, inequality and class and how, the, how those things play out in Irish society. So Lynn is from Killinarden in Talla in outer Dublin. It's a part of the city that's sometimes been used as a byword for neglect and mistakes in urban planning that have led to serious deprivation and social problems. Lynn has written in her autobiography, People Like Me, about her life journey from becoming a mother at 15 through working in addiction and homelessness services to entering higher education as a mature student and being elected senator at the impressive age of 31. She describes her own accent as a flat Dublin accent and she said it can mean she has to work harder to get people to recognise her abilities. Let's hear from Lynn. I wanted to ask you about the issue of how accent overlaps with inequality in class. Is that something that you've experienced? Do you find that you can get excluded because of the way you speak? Yeah, I would say there's a huge amount of unconscious um, bias in relation to um, accents and also in the, like in the professional world as well. You know, like I have some friends and some aunties and stuff that I love their common accent like it's I love it. You know, it's my favorite. It's my favorite accent is a, is a Dublin accent and um, like or you know, my type of Dublin accent. And there's nearly an, ast an astonishment sometimes when you have a really, really flat Dublin accent, say, amazing, intelligent stuff, you know, like it takes a little minute for it to compute in people's heads. And like when I'm watching the telly, like, I mean, I kind of the only time I hear an accent like mine is when your one Karen from Dancing on the Stars gets to speak, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that's the first time this week I've actually heard my accent on, you know, television. 
So it means that there's just a real lack of diversity and in, in, in every walk of life. I think my accent in politics, um, there is other working class people in politics. I know I've had very particular experiences, but I mean, I wouldn't be the only working class person in politics. But I think because of my accent, I had to work a little harder or because of my background, I had to. People didn't just expect that I could do my job and I'd be good at it. I felt I had to prove it. That whole conversation was fascinating and wide ranging and digs into everything from addiction in Ireland to inequality in the prison and justice system. So if you'd like to hear the whole thing, we'll be posting that full interview as a bonus episode over on patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. Yeah, do check it out. For now, though, we can dig a little deeper into Dublin accents because there's a huge variety in an urban area of less than two million people. And many of them are overlaid with ideas about class. Linguists divide Dublin accents into two groups. First, there's a so-called local Dublin English, which comprises the oldest accents in the city. Because Dublin was a colonial hub, you know, these accents have a lot of influences from Britain. So, for instance, you sometimes hear the R sound being dropped in the middle of a word, or you might hear the glottal stop used, you know, just like in Cockney accents from London, in words like butter and litter, which are sometimes pronounced like butter or litter. So it's, it's most commonly associated with North Dublin, but it's spoken all over the city and even beyond. Uh, for instance, take a listen to Ronnie Drew, one of the founders of the iconic Irish folk music band The Dubliners. He was actually born in Dunlira, that's south of Dublin, uh, but he provides a great example of this local Dublin English. Here's a clip of him speaking in a 1988 documentary called The Dubliners Dublin, where he pays a visit to the city's Moore Street Market. Dublin is still alive and kicking, and sure won't today be tomorrow's rare old times. You see, it's the Dubliner that keeps Dublin in a class of its own, and no better place to find a rail dub than in Moore Street. The traders here have been passing on their stalls from generation to generation. The lovely and hard-working lassies will give you an earful of Dublinese, and they're more than used to having the cameras come to visit. Say hello to Joe in Australia. Look into me, give you eyes. Why do you go drink now? No I don't drink, Ronnie. Don't drink, Don't drink. I like sex, though. Yeah. <laughs> the second accent grouping is referred to as non-local Dublin English, and that has a big crossover with the supra-regional accent that we spoke about earlier. That originated in middle-class Dublin accents, but like we said, it was disseminated across the country by media and, and education for generations. So over time, it kind of came back in a new form to reinvade Dublin, along with anyone who who moved there from outside the city. That's why it's called non-local. And just like the local counterpart of that, uh, there are a lot of different versions of non-local Dublin English. Uh, just for a bit of exemplary elocution, uh, take a listen to one of Ireland's best-known newsreaders, Brian Dobson. Good evening and welcome to 6-1. The country's scandal-hit banks must seek to regain the trust of the people, according to Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue after meeting bank executives this week on the tracker mortgage controversy. Then, of course, there is the infamous D4 accent, which we've talked about before on the, on the podcast. That is an accent from South Dublin that's considered kind of posh. Um, but when people talk about a D4 accent, they're often referring to actually a few different accents that are associated with middle-class culture. Um, there is an old accent in Dublin that you don't hear much anymore that people used to call the Rath Mines accent, and that sounded kind of English and colonial. Famously spoken by Vladimir Lenin, apparently, because he had an oh, Irish yes, nurse. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. 
<laughs> that is true, apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then later on, we started to hear um, a, an accent in the 1970s that was known as Dort speak. Um, that's because there's a suburban rail line in Dublin called the Dart, uh, D-A-R-T. Uh, but a lot of people started pronouncing it Dort and changing the, those A sounds to O. And then in the 1980s and 90s, you start to hear this quintessential D4 accent. And of course, that's named after the D4 postcode. The kind of quintessential version of that is one that has all these really exaggerated sounds. Um, so, for example, the ow sound, you know, is, is totally flattened. And it's like the ew. T sound. Yeah. Yeah, like ew, yeah. And the T sound becomes this really long, lingering sh sound. Um, so, like, in a word like about, um, well, I would pronounce it about, you know, some people um, might pronounce that abash. Abash, or, <laughs> yeah. Or the word over might be pronounced ever. Um, I'm not doing a very good example, but you get the idea. Now, according to linguists, that accent has actually been disappearing uh, in recent years, and it's being replaced with a whole new kind of middle-class um, accent that's known as New Dublin English, and that's basically a toned-down version. Here's Shane again. There's been a lot of research in the field of, of Irish English on, for example, the spread of what was sometimes called dart-speak, you know, the reflection of a, a variety spoken in, in Dublin, you know, along the, the area where the dart train line would go, and also, you know, the D4 accent, as it's known after this area of Dublin, uh, the postcode D4, and that's been seen to, to spread, you know, all around the country. And, you know, there's been a lot of research on that, on its prominence. There's been a lot of talk in the, the media for years about the um, the AA Roadwatch, if you're familiar with those people who uh, announce about traffic disruption on the roads. You know, the, the word roundabout is pronounced by many on those um, programs as roundabout, and this is the kind of thing which which then also spread around the country, much to the to the dismay of, of many people who write letters to the, the Irish Times or the Irish Independent. And um, there's a whole host of, of valuable linguistic information in those letters, even, you know, regarding their, their attitudes and perception towards the what they see as the pollution of, of Irish accents. Here's a fascinating one now, Tim. So I was down in Cork during the recent election campaign and I was at a Fine Gael campaign event in Balancholic. So this was an event for Fine Gael party members and uh, Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, addressed the party members to like fire them up and encourage them to to get out the vote, basically. OK, so this is what's so funny about it. The Fine Gael members were all sat down in this function room in a hotel and they were played little videos like you do at political campaign events, you know, about this or that. And one of them was called something like Get to Know the Taoiseach a Bit Better or something like that. It was basically a mm. Q&A with Leo Varadkar where they asked him a few questions like about his family life and his upbringing and so on. And one of the questions was, can you guess? Oh, his accent. It was about his accent. He was asked, are you from D4? And as Leo Varadkar explained, he's not from South Dublin at all. He's actually from Castle Knock in northwest Dublin. But because of the way he speaks, which perhaps is one of those toned down versions of the, the D4 uh, accent that we were talking about, Tim, a lot of people around the country think he's from D4. So mm. um, I just thought it was so fascinating that Varadkar had to like clarify this for Fine Gael members. And I think the context of it was that his accent was playing badly for him politically because it's associated with elitism. The negative image of Fine Gael, a stereotype, if you like, that they're the kind of posh boys, the the elitists who, who don't care about the ordinary, hardworking Irishman. That's that's so interesting. And of course, when uh, Leo Varadkar is satirised on the radio or on TV, often it's his voice, actually, that gets the, that gets the first treatment. Mm. 
So, Tim, do you have like a really niche Irish accent that you've kind of recognised or you that you like? Well, yeah, I, I was thinking about this and I actually wanted to bring up the um, the fact that, of course, we also have different accents when we speak Irish. Um, there is one accent in Irish uh, that's really distinct from the Cusharaga region. That's not far from where I grew up. Um, it's the bit of Connemara that runs along the north coast of Galway Bay. And a lot of people there are native Irish speakers. Um, but they have this kind of slippery accent when they speak Irish, where the, where the sh sound becomes this um, long kind of s sound. So if you, you might say something like... Um, Anshakthan Shakacha. You know, that means last week, Anshakthan Shakacha. But in, in the Connemara accent, that can kind of sound like Anshakthan Shakatsa. <laughs> you get all these very, I mean, it's really striking S sounds. And um, that totally spills over into how they speak English around there too. Uh, so when they say words like weasel, like the animal, it, it can come out like weasel. <laughs> weasel. Awesome. Yeah, pretty niche. In a recent half point, we heard about how the accents that we have in English are basically the accents we would have in Irish. So the distinctive accent, of course, in the Ulster dialect of of Irish is the same accent, really, that you find in Ulster English. And there are a couple of examples that I think really illustrate the diversity of accents. And one of them is the collection of accents around Wicklow. Um, So down the eastern coast from Dublin, there's a series of towns that are really close to each other, but they have really strong and diverse accents, like from Bray to Wicklow Town to Arklow. The the thing is, though, accents are not always geographically specific. So, for example, do you know the... um, the series Sherlock. Mm, yes. There's an Irish actor in that who plays the villain, Moriarty, and his name is Andrew Scott. And I was watching mm. it a couple of years ago with my partner, okay? And the Andrew Scott walks onto screen and he starts talking at you. Let's, let's hear that clip. Do you know what happens if you don't leave me alone, Sherlock? To you? Oh, let me guess. I get killed. Kill you? Mm, no, don't be obvious. I mean, I'm going to kill you anyway someday. I don't want to rush it, though. I'm saving it up for something special. No, 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 no. If you don't stop prying, I'll burn you. I'll burn the out of you. So how would you describe that accent there, Tim? Hmm, well, I, I definitely detect a bit of Dublin in there, a bit of maybe South Dublin, the way that lost sound becomes lost. You can't, That's a bit of a tell for South Dublin. Okay, so get this, right? When we saw that episode, I was sitting on the couch, Andrew Scott starts speaking, and I turned around and I said, that guy went to Gonzaga. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, okay, so of course, uh, Gonzaga, guys, is a private Jesuit uh, school in South Dublin. It's pretty famous. So yeah, it's this like studious and kind of bohemian or... I don't know, like they're really good at chess and debating and stuff like that. Um, a private school in Ranala. And when I heard that voice, I was just like, Gonzaga, right? Clicked with me. So, of course, I went to Wikipedia right away. And lo and behold, I was actually correct. So hmm. I had actually guessed Andrew Scott's exact school from hearing a few lines. Hmm. Now, you could say that maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's a coincidence. But if you ask me, it is a specific accent. It's not the famous sort of stereotypical South Dublin rugby school type accent which is a bit more um it's a bit more in your face um kind of more arrogant sounding this this Gonzaga voice is super specific kind of nerdy and and more subtle wow that is incredible I suppose it shows you how complex accents can be that you can actually tell where someone went to school for like five years of their life from the way they speak. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there was one accent though that I we were sent in by a listener, okay? And I wanted to kind of focus on it and give it some space because I thought it was fascinating because it shows how 
accents can contain a lot of history. So the guy that sent this in describes himself as coming from an old Anglo-Irish background. So he has aristocratic roots that stretch back a very long time in the north part of the island, including on both sides of the old sovereignty question. So he would have had people who would have favoured the United Irishman movement that wanted an independent republic and people who were loyal to British rule who would have signed the Ulster Covenant and so on. When I'm speaking to this man, right, to me, he sounds like a British aristocrat. But he told me that when he speaks to actual British aristocrats over in like England, they instantly recognise him for what he is as Anglo-Irish. And they often nickname him Paddy. That's fascinating. Well, that Anglo-Irish accent, of course, would have been the accent of the um, uh, colonial elite. Uh, and obviously, it's a part of society that didn't fit into the 20th century very well after the War of Independence. And it's pretty rare these days. Yeah, super rare accent. So I was absolutely delighted that he agreed to take part in our accent challenge and send us in a clip. Um, so we can hear how he says some words. And to me, sometimes he sounds like Liam Neeson a bit. And sometimes he sounds <laughs> like Queen Elizabeth. Let's have a listen. And root wash oil, theatre, iron, salmon, caramel, fire, water, sure, data, ruin, crayon, toilet, New Orleans, pecan, both, again, probably, spitting image, Alabama, lawyer, coupon, mayonnaise, syrup, pajamas, caught. Isn't it fascinating how much history can be contained in an accent? Like each one is the result of a particular time and place and everything that came before that. So we said at the beginning that we talk a little bit about our own accents, Tim, which is kind of something that has been commented on by some listeners to the podcast. So do you want to start, Tim? Uh, what kind of accent would you say that you have? <laughs> what kind of accent do I have? Uh, that's a big one, Naomi, as you know, of course. Um, I get a lot of stick about my accent at home and abroad, which is a phenomenon that we'll get to in a minute. Um, it's hard to judge yourself, of course, um, but I think I must have started off with a supra-regional accent, like the one that we were talking about. That's the standard RTE younger accent that we mentioned earlier, uh, that so many people in Royal Ireland have. But since then, my accent has definitely changed uh, over the years. I've lived half my life outside Ireland. Uh, lots of people have told me that I sound posh, which is fine by me. <laughs> but I don't really know where that came from. Um, or maybe, you know, like maybe they just have a really different idea to me of what constitutes a posh accent. You know, there's always that as well. Um, other people have told me that I don't sound like I'm from Galway. But I don't understand that either, because actually, like on reflection, loads of people from Galway sound like me. Um, like exactly like me. Like obviously loads of people don't. Um, but still, loads of people do. Um, I was talking about this with some people I went to school with uh, recently, and they said they had all had the exact same experience, actually, of people telling them they don't sound like they're from Galway. One friend has just concluded that most Irish people just don't actually know what people from Galway really sound like. <laughs> Speaking for myself, like my accent has evolved over the course of my life. By the time I was eight, by my count, I think I moved house six times. Um, and since university, I've lived in five different countries. So I've actually become quite self-conscious about the way I speak because it's been deemed 
wrong in so many different settings for many different reasons within Ireland, outside Ireland, by Irish people, by non-Irish people. It's been commented on a lot. Uh, the biggest change for me when I was when I moved country when I was six. So I was born to Irish parents in London and we moved home. Um, along with my brothers and sisters. That meant up until then, when I was a small child, I spoke with an East End London accent, which I picked up at preschool. Um, so I caught up on the phone to the one person who remembers this better than me, my older brother, Daniel. Let's hear what Daniel said. Uh, I know there's video footage around somewhere. I mean, there's something to be said, I'd say, for how quickly we uh, dropped our, or tried to drop our English accents after moving back. Do you remember, like, we used to come back and visit family at Christmas time and stuff like that. I remember when we first moved back to Dublin, we were staying with our grandparents quite close to our cousins. And I think I remember like on the first evening after we'd arrived, when we were kind of getting ready for bed, the two of us talking about and planning how we might adopt a more Irish accent. No. Um, oh my God. And planning it around, thinking about how they said things and sort of practicing it, like in a playful way, in a funny way, but also kind of planning to drop the English accent. That's amazing. I can't believe you remember that. I really don't, re- I don't remember that at all. Yeah, I don't normally remember things, but I've, I've, yeah, I have a fairly clear memory of that happening already. So like we like were on it, we were like, yeah, we've got to get rid of these accents. We've got to, get, we've got to send Irish. I think like I felt like very much an Irish person in London. And I think we all did when we were, when we were in London. We had friends who were uh, of Irish descent or who were Irish living in London and so did our parents so I kind of already felt Irish and just felt like I should like lean in and grow into my Irish identity more now that I was living back in Dublin and part of that was not sounding like an English person I suppose yeah so something that was absolutely re- relevatory to me from that conversation was that Daniel remembers us deliberately wanting to lose our English accents, which I had absolutely no memory of. And I actually mm. thought that all of these years, I just lost it completely unconsciously. What about you, Tim? Has your accent changed? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's constantly in a bit of a flux, um, honestly. As anyone knows who lives in a non-English speaking country, you know, this happens, especially if you are teaching there, you know, like I do. Uh, you find yourself just constantly every day adapting the way that you pronounce certain stown- sounds uh, because it's just so tedious to be misunderstood all the time Um, and that becomes second nature after a while and you kind of forget how you used to say things. Um, I also know for sure that my vocabulary and the cadence of my sentences has changed Uh, so these days you know I don't say things like um, isn't it him that you were given out to Um, because like people just don't know what you mean. Uh, It's like speaking gobbledygook to to people outside Ireland. Uh, So when I go go back to Ireland though with non-Irish people, they're often just amazed at how much my accent changes back. You know, I don't hear it myself, but I've been told. Oh, I've been told that as well. As well by by friends who aren't Irish who hear me answer the phone to my family. They're like, oh my God, what happened? (laughs) What happened to you? You just went like, what was that? Like I have no idea that I'm doing it. I, I think it's known by some linguists as code switching. But anyway, as far as I remember, Tim, you've always sounded the same to me. Um, oh, from thanks, Tim. College. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I totally recognise what you say about being outside Ireland. Like when I moved to Italy and started working in a media environment and interacting almost primarily with people whose first language wasn't English, I got in the habit of speaking quite clearly and enunciating each word like that, hmm. you know, so <laughs> that it's easier to pick up on. 
Um, because if I was just to speak like casually, like say I would with my family or whatever, uh, people would just be like, sorry, what? You have to keep, keep repeating yourself all the time. So you kind of get trained into it by the people, the reaction of people around you. I kind of think of, of it as like the TEFL teacher accent, you know, the people who <laughs> teach English as a foreign language. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I've noticed it's not actually exclusive to Irish people abroad. And it's common to various people who are trying very hard to make sure their words are understood. Well, how are you doing? My name is Megan and I'm orig originally from Fermanagh, but I've actually been living abroad now in England and now currently in China for the last couple of years. So this is quite interesting for me because, well, you know, when you're an Irish gal living abroad, you know, especially from Fermanagh gal, like, you know, you can't speak in your normal accent. You can't, you can't speak like this. Whenever I'm talking to my coworkers, who are all, you know, normally from England or from America or whatever, other ends of the earth, you know, like I, I have to speak really clearly and slowly like this because if I speak in my normal accent, like no one knows what I'm talking about and they get confused. Oh, you know, I, get, I do, I do look forward to getting back to Fermanagh and just chatting an absolute round on load of shite and just know that they'll, they'll all get what I'm saying, you know? Hi, Tim and Naomi. Um, my name is Amanda, and I am from Donegal. I suppose some of the things I know from having gone to college in Galway, some of the, the phrases that we use that wouldn't be down the country, are, um, we have Hanlon, and that means you would say, oh, that was a wild Hanlon yesterday, or I had a real Hanlon, my car broke down, it was a real Hanlon. Uh, it just means like a nightmare of an experience. Hi, I'm Alessandra McConville. I was born in Dublin. I lived there till I was seven. I moved to Sligo and then left at 18 for England. I've been in England 30 years. I have no idea what accent I have now. Most English people don't spot the Irish and all Irish people think I'm English. OK, so one of the really interesting things we noticed when we asked listeners to send in recordings of their voices is that there was this total outpouring of people telling us that they had been told that their accent was somehow wrong or inauthentic. It's so interesting. So, mm. like, And it totally resonates with me because over many, many times I've been told that my accent is, isn't really Irish for, for this reason or that. But it, it is, it's not nice, obviously, if you get it inside Ireland. But if you get it from someone who isn't Irish either, it's really jarring. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird thing. Yeah, um, that actually literally happened to me a few weeks ago. It happens all the time. Uh, some random stranger who I, I mean, I literally just met at a party. Just the second word out of, out of their mouths were... Um, no, you're not Irish. I have Irish friends and they don't talk like you. You're not Irish. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was a bit like, oh, nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, like, I'm not sure if people realize, you know, what a strangely hostile thing that is to say to someone, you know, especially if you just met them. Yeah, absolutely. And it puts you on the defensive. You're like, what? You have to justify mm. myself. But I, it's happened to me a good few times. Like, I remember this English girl in particular insisting to me that I couldn't be Irish because I didn't sound like her flatmate and I was like well like where's your flatmate from like are they from Monaghan or are they from Cork because like I wouldn't sound like them then you know because I'm not from those places and I've had other people say to me oh you're not you're not really Irish no because I've listened to how you speak and you're not Irish because Irish people say turty tree <laughs> oh, oh if, if I swear so the next person who asked me to say 33 and a third is just getting a, getting a punch oh, in the face that is a thing <laughs> isn't it I've been asked to see, say 33 and a third as well and I've been I asked mean, to say film to see if I say film as well quite aside from the fact that neither of us have the specific accent where we would say 33 
Um, both of us have, you know, th- the th sound in our accent. Quite aside from that, you know, would you like ask a, a Jamaican to repeat a line from like Cool Runnings? You know, like it's <laughs> it's just not an okay thing to say like dance monkey to people. Like, yeah, really. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it it happens so often that actually I've gotten used to just saying, you know, I'm Irish, by the way to people um, you know like if I meet an English person for instance and like it, it's so frustrating because half the time they like gasp in disbelief and then the other 50% of the time they they go like oh I know like you know <laughs> you like, didn't need to tell I, me didn't need to tell me what you're a leprechaun bro you know <laughs> so you just you can't win like either way um, so yeah. these days I just tend to like zone out when the topic comes up that, that is true like you also get that other reaction of people are laughing a lot at what you say or imitating you or whatever or maybe sometimes trying to get in with you or be extra friendly by like adopting things they think you might say like saying top of the morning to you or like you know being like like kind of how are you and we you know and like hamming it up with a bit of an Irish accent it's like you're you're dude like you're from you're from Kent (laughs) (laughs) hello my name is Francis I'm from Belfast and I'm an English teacher I spent three years in England and in the first year that I was there I was teaching English in a secondary school. In the school, there were quite a few teachers who were also Irish, but they were mainly from the Republic of Ireland and they all had lovely accents. I, on the other hand, came from up north and the kids thought that I was Scottish. And I couldn't say words like there or were in the school because the kids wouldn't understand me. What I ended up doing was I adjusted those words and I pronounced them there and where because I was fed up having to repeat myself. Fast forward a year or two and I was working in London with another fella from Belfast. And this fella had a problem with the way that I spoke and I explained to him. My accent hasn't changed. I'm not adopting an English accent. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm adjusting certain words and phrases because I'm fed up to the back teeth of some ignorant people in England who can't be bothered to listen to people who don't have the same accent as them. But he gave me a lot of stick, said I was changing my accent. Anyway, one night we went out for a drink and we bumped into a couple of girls from home. One of the girls was from Bangor and she was a bit more middle class than we were. Because I'm from a working class area in North Belfast. And the other fella who I was working with was from a working class area in West Belfast. Anyway, cut a long story short, at some point in the middle of the night she said to my friend, Oh my God! How come your friend has a really, really strong Belfast accent and you don't? And needless to say, the other fella from Belfast who was giving me grief for months turned out my Belfast accent was stronger than his. Hi, I'm Orla and I'm from Donegal. Uh, There's a few words that we say in Donegal that I really like. An example would be, uh, instead of remember, we would say mind. So you'd say, do you mind the time we went to the cinema? Or I can't mind where I got that. Another one that I really like is while, because you can use it in a few different contexts. For example, as an intensifier, you could say, God, she's while nice. Now, one thing that a lot of people uh, point out, especially in Ireland itself, is that there is a noticeable American influence uh, in Irish accents sometimes, which can be stronger or or weaker, depending, um, especially in children and in teenagers. Now, people have, have told me that I sound American all the time, though I, I can't really hear it myself. Um, uh, but w- even I, when I go back to Ireland, it seems more and more that people sound more and more American. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're imbibing this from, like, TV. Yeah, I've, I've noticed it with 
children. It has taken me aback sometimes to hear mm. hear how Americans some sound. Um, but I guess like Irish and American accents are cousins. Like they're actually very closely interlinked historically, right? Because of course the first major wave of colonists arriving in North America were arriving at the same time as they were coming to Ireland. So that English we were talking about that Irish people learned at the time, that was the same English as was being spoken in America. And elements of those English versions of English, they survived in both places. And of course, millions of Irish people have emigrated to America over the past 200 years. And those immigrants had a profound effect on the way that Americans speak, never mind being broadcast back with the mass media that we consume from the United States. So sometimes when you hear Irish people sounding American, you're actually hearing sounds that are common to both the Irish and American accents. It's not that, you know, it's it's one or the other. Right. Uh, let's take a listen to Shane one last time on this. We might say we're beginning to sound American, but, you know, they also have sounded Irish for a long time or at least retained some of these features that were typical of Irish and Scottish uh, Englishes. I've often noticed and I've uh, often wondered whether it's in my own head, uh, but sometimes accents from Northern Ireland at, at split moments, it can sound um, very much like a Southern American accent, like, you know, Southern states like Georgia. Um, is that in my head or is there an influence between between those accents? No, that's that's certainly not uh, in your head. You're not you're not imagining that the the primary settlers in the south were Scots-Irish, so there would have been people from Antrim, from parts other parts of the northeast of, of Northern Ireland, and they would have gone and settled in the in the south. So you do find a lot of those types of features still in southern Englishes in, in the United States. Also some grammatical features as well. Something that I've noticed kind of reporting this episode is there seems to be kind of strangely heightened suspicion around Irish accents that they might not be authentic for this reason or that. People seem to be vigilant for authenticity everywhere and they, they constantly kind of suppose that people are putting on an accent or affecting it in, in a false way. I was given a real lift by all the people who emailed into us saying that they had experienced, you know, people questioning the authenticity uh, of their accent. As we've both explained, you know, we get questioned about that all the time ourselves um, and not just from people abroad, from people in Ireland as well who are just don't seem to be happy that we don't have the accent that they want us to have you know and but so many of you emailed in to talk about this it kind of made me click as like actually you know we're the normal ones you know <laughs> like uh, like this is actually a really regular experience um for loads of people with loads of different accents so we can't all be wrong actually we're probably all right um and we're probably um all just as authentic as one another you know um it shows that a huge number of people are walking around every day thinking that there is something specific wrong with their accent and half the people around them are probably thinking the same thing so you know if we take anything from this uh, carry on guys uh, every accent is a real accent every accent is authentic and everyone living in ireland by definition if you ask me has an irish accent and i couldn't put it better than charles and andrew hendy who i spoke to recently of the music group tpm and the mary wallopers they put their lovely dundalk accents to musical use in their work and they told me this about the importance of just rolling with what you've got. Do you feel like that distinct Dundalk sound that you have has a special musical use or it, it, it's, it has a special musicality? I, I think just wherever you come from, if you just appreciate your own colloquialisms and, and be proud of it and, and, and perform in a true way to it, it, it it'll always it'll always be good, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like... like Dundalk was nothing special un until people do it, do you know what I mean? There's something so freeing about singing in your own voice. You know, I it's the only thing you really, really have. Yeah, I, I definitely think 
whatever you're doing, you should always just do it in your own way and embrace your own thing, you know. It's just easier, to be honest. Yeah. And we'll have the Merry Wallopers play us out with their rendition of Cod Liver Oil and Orange Juice by the Glasgow songwriter Hamish Imlach. And by the way, listeners, if you want to get your hands on one of your very own Irish passport tote bags, and if you want to support the podcast along the way, you can buy them directly from our website, www.theirishpassport.com. Last but not least, please share the podcast with your friends and family if you like it. And if you have a moment to rate the show on whatever platform you use, it really makes a difference. Slon for now. Slon, everyone. He went into a pub and he came a paralytic. Oh, ho, ho, the insider. Ah, ah, ah. But a hell of a mystery. Cod liver oil and the honey stew. Does this bus go to the dinosaur parley? Oh, ho, ho, I'm looking for a lumber. He met Harry Mary Oh, oh, oh The flower of the Gorbals Ah, ah, ah Glory, hallelujah Cut the oil And the orange juice Oh, no, Mary Are you dancing? Oh, no It's just that way I'm standing Ah, ah, ah Glory, hallelujah Shows your chances. Ah, 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 glory, hallelujah. Cod liver oil and the orange juice. Oh, no, Mary, can I run you home? Oh, ho, ho, I've got a pair of sand shoes. Ah, 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 got a hell of a funny. Cod liver oil and the orange juice. Legion, I-
Yeah, I need 